Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Well, not just Lost in Science. It is our annual, usually annual, um, I think we've missed a year here or there, our Lost annual Halloween themed Lost in Science fiction episode, which is always very exciting. Don't you agree, Stu and Catriona? Absolutely. It's my favourite, it's my favourite thing is, you know, making lost in science about science fiction because there's a whole lot of really bad science fiction movies and I would hate to think I've wasted my time watching them. (laughs) (laughs) It's all research. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's that's what I tell everyone. (laughs) And how about you, Katriona? Are you a science fiction fan? Yeah, I think it's incredible, like, the things that we kind of, well, authors predict, like, way before they even happen. Very exciting to see all the imagination. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm sure we all have some good stories tonight. We're going to try and crank out a story. So it'll be three stories, the extra bonus kind of content for your ear holes, which is pretty good. I think, um, yeah, you should be grateful to us for that. Um, that's probably talking a bit much there. Uh, Katriona, what have you brought for us today? I'm talking about the feasibility of hoverboards and flying cars. Oh, interesting. I think we've all wondered about that, like the whole kind of it's a future, where is my flying car <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. We've already passed October 21st, 2015. <laughs> That's true. That was a long time ago. That's ancient history now. Yeah, yeah. right. And, and you know, th- there, was, there was both of those in that film, uh, mm-hmm. Back to the Future 2. There, there was a flying car and a hoverboard. Where are they? What, what's going on? Right. That's what I'll get into. Fantastic. Uh, how about you, Stu? What um, what old science fiction are you dredging up for us? Well, speaking of time travel, I'm travelling way, way back in time, 50 years into the past, to look at a movie set at some time in the future. Um, I'm looking at a movie uh, called, or looking at the story of a film called Silent Running, which is um, a bit of a, a bit of a classic sci-fi movie coming at a time when there was really a dearth of good science fiction, really. The early 70s was a bit barren as far as um, sci-fi classics went. But, um, look, Silent Running, it's about, it's about uh, shooting all of our ecosystems into space to keep them safe, which seems like a really bad idea. But I'll talk about more about that uh, when, when I come to my turn. Um, excellent. Well, I believe that I'm going to touch on something in my story that is kind of connected to that. But yeah, I actually struggled to find science fiction this year because I've just been watching a lot of kids shows. Um, there's been very little science fiction. Um, you know, I think a lot about how the Peppa Pig universe works. There isn't much (laughs) science involved in it. If there is science involved, you don't want to think about it too much. It's, yeah... Uh, yeah, but um, I recently watched uh, one of the Marvel films. I watched the the new Thor, mm-hmm. uh, Love and Thunder, 
And there was a mention of wormholes in that. I mean, very little actual science in that movie, <laughs> but there was a mention of wormholes. They tried to be a bit scientific. And I thought, yoo-hoo, that's going to do for me. Um, I can connect that obliquely to this year's Nobel Prize in Physics. Perfect. Uh, so, yeah, that's, I'm going to talk about wormholes, because who doesn't love a good wormhole? Farmers with apples, I guess, is the answer there, <laughs> perhaps. But, uh, yeah. Um, and maybe carpenters. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we won't touch on that too much. But anyway, look, it sounds like we have a interstellar kind of delight full of shows, uh, stories here for you on this episode. So look, let's get on with it. On with the show. Of like, why aren't we all getting around on hoverboards yet? And do we even have them? Um, flying cars and hoverboards, they, they aren't impossible. They're just completely improbable right now. Um, because if they were ever to become available to the everyday person, one way to build them would be using magnetic levitation and a type of material called superconductors. So essentially, superconductors expel magnetic fields. And, and so something weird happens when they interact with magnets. Because a magnet needs to maintain its sort of north-south magnetic field, so if you think back to like um, high school physics when you, you try and putting poles of magnets together, um, magnets keep that. And if you place a superconductor super on the magnet, it interrupts those field lines and the magnet sort of lifts the superconductor out of the way, kind of suspending it in the air. And there you have it, magnetic levitation or maglev. And two of the fastest trains in the world currently use this technology, using two sets of magnets to elevate the train and propel it forward. And it's really great because you propel it forward and friction doesn't even slow it down because um, friction doesn't sort of act on that. So Japan's maglev is the fastest train in the world with a speed record of 603 kilometers per hour, um, but that's still in production. So China actually has a maglev train in operation clocking in at 600 kilometers per hour. Wow. So um, these do these maglev trains, do they actually use superconductors for their operation? Yeah, they, they do. Yeah. Right. So they, do they have, to have some sort of like elaborate cooling mechanism? Because superconductors generally work at really cold temperatures is my understanding. Yeah, that's, that's the really big catch. So one of the reasons that we have to sort of only contain this technology within the confines of train tracks as opposed to, you know, using hoverboards and flying cars wherever we want is, as you say, the cooling system. So all superconductors need to be kept cold and you're looking at minus 145 degrees Celsius or, or even colder. Um, so the most common coolants for this are liquid helium or liquid nitrogen um, because the second that the coolant is gone, the levitating superconductor just sort of drops back down onto the ground. Um, so Not something you want to have happen to your train that goes no. 600 kilometers an hour, no. <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah, the trains are definitely keeping those tracks cool. Um, so if, if we had maglev cars or hoverboards, they would all need cooling units and, like, sort of need a regular dose of liquid helium or nitrogen. And mm. at the moment, they're a little bit too expensive for widespread use. You also would need tracks like a train, I guess. You couldn't just go anywhere because you need 
like a magnet and a superconductor working together, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's the other catch, I guess. Um, on a train track, you've got the metal and you have a track. Um, but without a magnet in our streets and like you would you would essentially need to have the entire neighborhood having a magnetic floor for this to be feasible um or magnetic ground i should say um and you'd need magnets under the streets under the sidewalks and even then it would be really really difficult to drive freely without a track because the superconductor would sort of just try and follow a definite path and so roaming around in a hoverboard or even something that we sort of take as so simple like changing lanes in a car they would all be very very difficult in sort of this free roaming magnetic city (laughs) that was something i was going to ask too is so a normal train works by applying force to the tracks and that's you know the wheels push the train forward how does a magnetic levitating train even move at all um well it's it's a good question and it's really something that i'm still trying to get my head around um but essentially it's kind of being pushed forward i guess by the force because essentially if you've ever seen kind of like a a superconductor on top of a magnet um it's it's just like sort of pushed around and kind of hovers um so i guess you've sort of got this hovering thing and once it's built up that momentum it just goes but um, not entirely sure. But the great thing is that um, you don't lose any energy. So a big thing when we move forward just in general is that we're having to combat friction. Um, But superconductors are really great in that they have no loss of energy. So you're not losing those things at all. Not slowing down. You need really good brakes. (laughs) Apart from air resistance, I imagine, Mm. like from the – From above, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, do we have actual hoverboards? The answer is, yeah, kind of. (laughs) So, on October 21st, so the date, but a year earlier, so 2014, a year out from that Back to the Future date, um, a company called ArxPax announced that it had been working on a prototype hoverboard and it can get maybe like an inch, so 2.5 centimeters off the ground. Um, And they've got specially lined copper floors um, and essentially it's levitating or just getting a little bit off the ground off that copper floor because you've got that magnetic field in the floor and they're sort of repelling each other Um, and then you've also got in 2015 I'm not sure if you saw the video from Lexus where they had like a hoverboard yeah. in a skate park. Saw that one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that again was using magnets and liquid nitrogen um, as a superconductor, like to keep it cool enough. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, another company found a much easier way to do it, which is basically to simply make like a, a Segway and call it a hoverboard. Yeah. Even though it didn't actually hover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking about like, you know, all those boards that people are going around, like um, Arrested Development with Joe, mm. just, yeah, I'm hovering around. Yeah. Not yeah. needing to walk. <laughs> it's just branding. That's all it is. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, maybe maybe somewhat feasible. We can We can certainly do it in principle, but, you know, for the moment, it's not really feasible to get everyone on hoverboards and flying cars. And even if you wanted to get on a flying car. I think in the film they went up to like 10 metres high, 9 to 10 metres off the ground. Um, you'd need a really, really strong magnet for something like mm. that. <laughs> I think you'd, you'd probably also need uh, 
uh, a more powerful civil aviation authority to deal with three dimensions of personal vehicles, <laughs> uh, considering how much trouble we have people moving in just two dimensions. Um, I can't imagine mm. that, that a third dimension would make anything safer either. <laughs> yeah. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. said I've I'm traveling back 50 years to the 1970s and the early 70s were a very weird time for sci-fi um the the big the big film of the late 60s the biggest sci-fi film uh was 2001 a space odyssey and it didn't actually make very much money so the studios were a bit worried about sort of throwing big dollars at big budget science fiction movies. And if you look at the output of sci-fi in the early 70s, there was a lot of, uh, well, there's a lot of uh, ecological disaster films, to be quite honest, is one of the big themes there is, you know, everyone's living in a post-apocalyptic dystopia and trying to eat each other and various um, takes on that story. Uh, But there were some interesting films made in the first half and one which which I happened to catch late at night in my teens and it probably influenced my my ideas a little bit about um environmentalism uh and and probably a little bit with my fascination with robots uh as well is that the film was called Silent Running and it was released in 1972 um and this was directed by Douglas Trumbull who's a special effects expert who worked on 2001 and he basically worked out how to do all these things and made 2001 look like real space travel effectively at the time. Um, He went on to work on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. He went on to work on Blade Runner. So he's a real go-to guy, but this was the first film he'd ever actually directed. Uh, And it's it's a simple but ultimately pretty depressing story about a giant fleet of spacecraft in orbit around Saturn who are tasked with keeping alive a number of Earth ecosystems in gigantic greenhouse domes attached to the ships. So, you know, I don't really know how they chose which ecosystems they would they would preserve in space, uh, but it is pretty depressing because these are ecosystems that are extinct on Earth in the in the mm. timeline of this film. So, there's these last remnants are being preserved as sort of a museum. Um, there's not really any practical reason to have them. And apparently the mission's funded by big corporations. And as they're sort of moving through the spaceships, you see these big brand names written on the sides of of the of the walls and of cargo and stuff like that. It's really quite odd. Um, possibly it's a tax write-off for those big corporations. I don't know. A lot of the companies have gone broke no, though now. So maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Um 
but the ships the ships that they've got these uh ecosystems on they have human crews to take care of various things and they have robot crews to take care of jobs that are too dangerous for the humans and these are pretty cute little robots and this is five years before r2d2 made that an absolute necessity you couldn't have a sci-fi movie without a cute robot well these guys were way (laughs) ahead of their game here um but the focus of the film is a ship called the Valley Forge, which is named after a decommissioned aircraft carrier, which was a real one. Then they actually used that to shoot the film inside. So they were allowed to go inside the aircraft carrier and use that as the interior of the spaceship, which is kind of cool. And then they used the name as well. Um, and there's a botanist on board who looks after the numerous plant species that they're carrying. But I think probably the the hardest part to de- to believe about this story is the idea of preserving these chunks of ecology in space at great expense because I kind of feel like if we can't look after them well enough on Earth just by leaving them alone, it seems pretty (laughs) unlikely that someone's going to spend, you know, huge amounts of money to send them into space and put them in orbit around another planet. Um, it, It just seems like absolute science fiction to me anyway um, we could throw money at it here on earth it would it would still turn out cheaper <laughs> surely if we did that we could just sort of you know fund research and keep things going here um it did make me think of though of your story from last week where you interviewed the uh, tian huan about the the growing plants on the moon. Yes, absolutely. And and one of the things that, that I mentioned to her was that, you know, ecosystems are not just plants. There's thousands or millions of organisms involved in a functioning ecosystem. And we actually don't know enough about how ecology fits together to be able to scoop that up and put it in a spaceship and get it out into into orbit around Saturn. It seems, you know, this is well beyond any of our understanding. We don't... We don't even understand what we've got, let alone how we could possibly even move that somewhere else. Um, Even at the time that the film came out, the difficulties of maintaining plant life in orbit around Saturn uh, was questioned by none other than Carl Sagan, who said, you seem to have forgotten about the inverse square law and the intensity of light the further away you move from the sun because one of the things that everyone knows about plants is they do need light. And if you put them in space far away from where the sun is, they need a light source of some kind. But I'm pretty sure there's, you know, these seem to be gigantic nuclear-powered spacecraft, which was probably something people were expecting to happen at the time. Um, And maybe they, you know, they've got artificial light up there or something, I'm not sure. Um, The special effects are very impressive, but the practicalities are probably... Uh, need a little bit more work. Um, But look, I think the early 70s is kind of the birth of the environmental movement. If you think, you know, we're talking three years after the summer of love, 1969, and the environmental movement's really kicking off. And I think that inspired a lot of those uh, echo disaster films that followed in the 70s as well. And I think it's obviously meant more as a a warning than as a, a suggestion of what we could do. I don't think... Douglas Trumbull was intending that he would inspire someone to actually build this project. And I think one of the other things to, to look at too is there's, there's this botanist on board, he's tending to the plants, but 
ecosystems need space to take care of themselves so they can adapt to changing conditions. They're not really like a garden in that way. We can't sort of predict what they're going to need in the future. They've got to be able to adapt and change over time on their own. So, I mean, at the moment, I think if there's any intention of permanent human settlements on the moon or on other planets, uh, preserving and learning from the ecosystems we have on Earth is probably going to teach us a lot more about how that might work than uh, than sticking some um, spaceships up around Saturn with, with plants growing on them. Uh, not Not that putting plants on the moon to find out how they cope is a bad idea. I think that's a great idea. Um, but as far as we know, this is the only planet with any functional ecosystems at all, uh, and expecting big companies to preserve them doesn't really look like a safe bet at the moment. Um, and I think that's uh, the scariest science fiction I, I could come up with for Halloween. <laughs> I'm theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, and you're listening to Lost in Science, which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and as I said in the introduction, um, I am talking about a brief mention in the recent Marvel movie Thor, Love and Thunder, of wormholes uh not much of a spoiler uh near the very beginning of it uh the character jane foster played by natalie portman who is in the movie an astrophysicist or in the thor movies is an astrophysicist um she is explaining how thor's magical rainbow bifrost transportation bridge works and she explains it as being a wormhole uh, and to explain it, she actually references two other science fiction movies. She references Event Horizon, which I know is a, a favourite of Stu's, and um, the movie Interstellar. Um, so they're kind of it's it's very kind of I don't know shorthand way of getting your science exposition across by just referencing <laughs> other movies that cover it in more detail. They they do see reference. <laughs> Essentially, that's what it does, and it works very well. They do you know? that a lot. Everyone goes, oh yeah, I've seen Interstellar. Yeah. They do that a lot in uh, in the Marvel universe. I've noticed referencing other films, you know, especially with their time yeah. travel stuff. Uh, there's a lot of references there too. Yeah, but it's interesting. Um, it just the introduction of Interstellar that did make me think because I think in that movie too there is a plan to grow crops off Earth, which when I was watching the movie seemed, like you said, like a really ridiculous, expensive, complicated idea. Um, they needed, that's right, I think they had to solve quantum gravity so that they could move all the crops off Earth for some ecological disaster reason and didn't make a lot of sense at all. It, did, it didn't make a lot um, of sense considering throughout the early part of the film you can see plants growing everywhere in the background. Yeah, but I think there's some problem with the plants. With uh, the way there's like, some impending disaster. Of course, of um, course. There's also a whole thing about the the main character's name really confused me. Um, but um, look, I won't get into that now. It's a bit hard to explain. Um, but yeah, so wormholes are kind of they are a bit of a staple of science fiction. So they're a good thing to talk about. They're often used as a way of getting around the universe quickly and as is explained in well all the movies where they appear a wormhole is essentially um it's like 
two, I suppose, black holes that are joined together by a tunnel that goes through another dimension. And so they allow you to go between two distant points through a shortcut, essentially, is the idea. Um, now, wormholes are actually allowed in uh, general relativity, which is Einstein's theory of general relativity, which is our understanding of how space and time and gravity works. Um, and hence their other name, uh, again, which is mentioned in the movie, which is Einstein Rosen Bridges. Um, one of the solutions for describing how they could work was um, published by uh, Albert Einstein and Nathan Rosen in a paper in 1935, although there had been other people who found the solutions about 20 years earlier. Um, and so, yeah, known as Einstein Rosen Bridges. And yeah, it's pretty straightforward kind of solution to the to the Einstein's um, formula for general relativity, but they not a practical kind of way of getting around the universe, it turns out. Uh, pretty much all the solutions that people have found that can make you build a wormhole, they're not going to be stable, at least if they're not, at least if they're joining two places in the same universe. There's kind of a loophole if you can go between different universes. But if you're trying to make a shortcut between two places in the same universe, then you get this kind of feedback between the two mounts of the wormhole that cause it to collapse. Um, so they don't last very long. You wouldn't be able to get through it and you'd probably burn up on the way through. Uh, and usually to, to people trying to find ways to get around this kind of collapse, this feedback, and you require things like some you know, exotic matter or energy that has like a negative pressure or negative energy pushing out, or you require exotic physics with extra dimensions and things or slightly different kind of universe to the one that we live in for it to work. So yeah, they're not really a practical thing for getting around the universe as yet, as far as we know. Um, but there is still kind of this idea that maybe there could be like really tiny microscopic wormholes, um, which some people speculate that perhaps you could send information down as opposed to objects, which is itself an intriguing idea. Perhaps you could like transmit information um, between distant points of the universe faster than the speed of light. However, it's even more interesting because it may not just be kind of information that we send down, but just general information and including kind of the quantum information that sort of makes up the universe. And this is where um, something that I'll have to touch on, I think, in a later episode. We don't really have time for this here. But there is this theory that when you have um, something in quantum mechanics we call entanglement, where you have two quantum systems that are essentially joined together and uh, are related, even though they can be like light years apart, that the way that that works is because they're connected by a microscopic wormhole. Um, and this, as I said in the introduction, this kind of relates to this year's Nobel Prize in Physics, which looked at this idea of entanglement. They did experiments on it. So I am going to have to explain that, I think, in a future episode. Um, but it's really cool because, and this is, this is completely an irrelevant, nerdy detail, um, but things that people have picked up on. Um, entanglement was described... I guess, first in a paper by Einstein, Rosen, and their colleague Podolsky. It's called EPR. And so you have Einstein-Rosen um, wormholes could be the same thing as entanglement, which is Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, which is a nice little coincidence there that uh, they didn't figure out, but perhaps <laughs> it's the way it all works. So I guess what I'm trying to say is wormholes perhaps are not going to be the science fiction solution to getting around the universe fast than speed of light, but they could be some kind of solution to understanding quantum gravity itself and how the the universe works 
on you know on every scale, which is actually not a bad really replacement for faster than light travel, I reckon. And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where the same time every week when we all get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.